Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Dave V, Andy J, Gordon S, and Luke A. We've got a returning guest on the show today. Mr. Marco Day is back on the program. Mark is the executive chair of Northwest Copper and also one of the founders of Oxygen Capital. Northwest Copper is advancing the Quanica Stardust Copper Gold Project in British Columbia towards development. The company also has a pipeline of exploration projects in BC. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol NWST and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol SGRNF. Mark, it's great to have you back on the show. Welcome, sir. Hey, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me back. Well, how's life in British Columbia these days? It's pretty good. You know, the, the sun's shining and it smells like summer's in the air. Our field crews are on site at Northwest Copper. So, uh, you know, with great anticipation, we look forward to starting to drill. Well, Mark, my mistake here, I should have referred to you using the proper credentials, Dr. O'Day, that's correct. <laughs> I only use that when I have to fly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, well, give us your view of the markets here. We've had some quite some action here uh, over the last, really, the last year. Copper prices is up and moving, of course. But with that, the oxygen portfolio, why don't you cover your thoughts on each of the focus metals at this point in the market, which would be copper, silver, and gold? Sure. Well, let's start with copper since that's sort of the topic we're going to be focused on today. Uh, for those of you sort of focused on that part of the sector, I mean, it has been on an absolute tear. Um, I think at its high point, it you know, touched 460, 470 uh, a pound. And you can think back a year ago, two years ago, where it was, you know, 250. And so it is, it is absolutely rocketed, really driven by supply demand more than anything. So what we've seen that translate into is incredible performance from the senior and intermediate copper producers. The copper explorers and developers have participated to a certain degree, uh, not fully in that copper boom yet, but I think as, as investors move down the food chain and copper remains strong here, we're gonna see that, that move and that participation by the, the junior copper explorers and developers, especially those in my opinion, working in tier one jurisdictions like British Columbia. In terms of gold and silver, um, that's been more of a, a sort of a, a transparent, uh, more broadly aware type movement as, it, as it's linked to a lot of the sort of monetary policies and fiscal policies that, that sort of permeate the world right now. So gold has done its thing. It took a bit of a breather sort of mid-year, but seems to be back in the spotlight here trying to test old highs um, but it's like i said it's doing its thing it's it's holding its ground it's being the, the hedge against inflation it's that it's supposed to be and sort of retaining its buying power as as the dollar gets crushed and inflation uh, starts to take off so we've seen 
our gold companies, Pure Gold Mining, which has just finished construction of its of its first underground gold mine in Red Lake, Ontario, and we're uh, sort of a month away, roughly, from commercial production. That, that stock's performed well in the in the context of the gold space. Liberty Gold as well. So we're developing a large open pit Carlin-style uh, deposit in Idaho, uh, and called Black Pine. And so Liberty's done really well with with gold doing its thing, and then silver, um, you know, silver almost touched 30 bucks, right? So, you know, the silver bulls will say it's going to 50 or 60. I can't really comment on that specifically, but uh, Discovery Metals in Chihuahua, uh, Mexico, which is our silver company, has one of the largest undeveloped or yet to be developed, I should say, silver deposits in the world, and we are fast tracking that through. Uh, resource definition and PEA uh, for the balance of the year. So it's been an incredibly active and busy year for all of our portfolio companies and and we're in the right commodities. So I think our timing is excellent with respect to the commodities that we're focused on. Mark, and it's fascinating on Discovery uh, specifically, all of them are doing well, but Discovery specifically, the market cap of that company, the cash the company has, the development capex to get going on some type of a production profile very attractive here where you guys have set that up and where the company stands from a market cap standpoint and cash standpoint well done on that part of it of mm-hmm. course with the other companies fantastic progress across the board and it's good to see the progress across the portfolio companies with a strong view of gold silver and copper but mark in keeping with the tradition here because you've got a uranium mark in your past portfolio <laughs> Should your plate have some extra space on it or should space become available in the event that one or two of these existing companies get divested, would you consider a return to the uranium sector with a dedicated company? Well, that's a good question. I I would have to say no, not because I'm not a fan of uranium. I am. I think it's I think it's a vital part of our sort of sustainable future for baseload electricity and clean electricity. Um you know, I think, and I think the uranium stocks are going to do well. You know, we we had a, a crack at it in the last cycle with Aurora. Uh, I think at its peak, Aurora sort of got to about 1.2 billion in market cap, and we had about the 10th largest uranium deposit in the world. And we ended up selling it to Paladin. Um, you know, I, I just personally, I found the uranium space a little bit too opaque, and too much of a big boys game for for us to feel like we had any kind of competitive advantage in terms of the ultimate developability of these projects. But I do love uranium. I'm a huge fan, and you know, continue to stay sort of personally invested in some of these uranium stocks. Excellent. Well, I won't ask you what those are, but uh, it's good to hear your comment on that. And of course, you know, people in the sector, including Mr. Borjoff and some others, and, and you're right. We were certainly intimidated amongst a few other small groups in this sector going back to 2016, 2017. The facts are it took years to get every piece and component of this market sorted out to have a clear view on where this market's headed and where the equities are headed. And Mm -hmm. the fact that, like you said, development of these assets is the most complex. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens this time around with a few management teams and the talent that has left the sector and the aging talent that is still in the sector. But uh, glad you still have a view on it. Well, let's talk Northwest Copper here. Last, we had Steve Robinson on the program to update about eight months ago. 
since there has been a merger with Serengeti to consolidate the area, a good move in my view that the market will appreciate in the year or so ahead. Talk about the merger and now the current capital structure, um, shares out, cash, et cetera. Okay. So in March, we closed the merger between what was Sun Metals and Serengeti Resources to create a brand new company called Northwest Copper. You know, the industrial logic behind that was the proximity that each of those companies' flagship assets had to one another. So Sun, Sun Metals had uh, the Stardust deposit, which was a high-grade, is a high-grade copper gold uh, deposit. And sitting right next door to it is the Quinica deposit owned by Serengeti. And you can, you can see one deposit from the vantage point of, of the other. So they're next door neighbors, literally. So a huge amount of synergy from an infrastructure point of view, from a development point of view, from a commodity mix point of view, they're both copper and gold. Quinica is a large copper gold porphyry style deposit. It's a large tonnage, hundreds of millions of tons. And Stardust is a, a smaller tonnage, but much higher grade deposit. Um, that would be considered a massive sulfide deposit. So, you know, visually very, very impressive. You look at the core and it's full of copper and it's heavy. You can hardly lift it because of all the sulfide mineral minerals. So the, the logic behind the deal was, why don't we put these two companies together and have a one plus one equals three or four type synergy um, scenario where Sun Metals provides the grade and and the near-term mineability, and Quinica provides the heft and the, um, the critical mass. And together, let's see if we can formulate and structure and design a project that looks better than either one might on their own. And really the gravy on top of that underlying fundamental principle was it also pulls together a pipeline of projects outside of just Stardust and Quinica in one of the most prolific copper gold belts in North America um, that gives us multiple kicks at the can here to make new discoveries along this trend. So all of our projects now fit within the sandbox, we'll say between two well-known deposits in BC, one's called Kames and one's called Mount Milligan. And we own a huge tract of ground within that corridor. And there are three key centers of gravity in that corridor now that that we own uh, and obviously the flagship is Stardust and Quinica. The second most advanced is called Lorraine and the third least advanced more grassroots is called East Niv but arguably you know some would argue that it's the most exciting of the three because it's it's brand new and never been drilled before and, and we could be on to a new discovery there. So effectively putting these two companies together has created a brand new diversified but geographically focused copper gold explorer developer in you know in a tier one jurisdiction and it's a stronger company than either one were on their own we have raised 23 million dollars in two financing so we're cashed up you know one of the sort of the achilles heel of a lot of these junior explorers in in the market is that they're chronically underfinanced or undercapitalized. And so they can never really make any kind of material progress on their projects. And so one of the things we wanted to solve for right out of the gate was to get financed sufficiently to move our material projects through the next decision points this year. And so that's, that's our intention. We've designed our projects and, and have the budget to do it, 
so that we're going to get to key decision points and key deliverables this year. And so from an investor point of view, that's how value is created. If you get your project to the next stage, whether it's a, a defined resource or an economic study or a permitting hurdle or whatever it is, that's how value gets created. And so we raise the money. And then on top of it all, the, the third sort of component of the merger is that we repopulated uh, the C-suite. So we brought in a new CEO. Uh, his name's Peter Bell. And I've known Peter for probably 12 or 13 years. When I first met him, he was a fund manager and analyst at a, at a fund in London called Polygon. You know, he was a tough nut. He was very uh, technically critical. He asked all the right questions. And a lot of that had to do with his background prior to becoming a fund manager, which was 13 years at Newmont, including uh, having been the chief geo at the world's largest gold producer in Peru called Yanacocha which I think the year, one of the years he was there, produced over 3 million ounces of gold from that mine alone. So he's been around, I think he's visited 500 plus mines in his career. Um, you know, very, very technically strong guy with a good market facing presence, understands the business, was most recently an investment banker at National Bank Financial. So he's the full meal deal and he's come in, excited to join this, this company with this portfolio cashed up and ready to go. Um, and then behind him, we brought in Dr. Jim Lang, who's a very, very well-known porphyry copper gold expert uh, with, a, with a real sort of knowledge, deep knowledge of British Columbia geology. And then the technical team sort of cascades down from, from both of those people. So the company's incredibly strong right now, technically, financially, and, and from a diversified sense, we, you know, we've got a great pipeline, if you add up all of the, the resources that we have now wrapped our arms around in our, in our corridor that I just mentioned, you know, we're sitting on about 2.4 billion pounds of copper and 2.9 million ounces of gold. So we've got some serious heft behind us now in terms of an inventory of metal. And now we need to focus on sort of the key components of that inventory to get into the development phase of some of them. Looking forward to having Peter come on the program and talk and give updates uh, later on in the year here. I thought it was a good move. The market hasn't done much with it yet, but you guys have put together a, an exploration program that you guys just announced recently that will really start to define some of those goals you were mentioning. Can you just talk about that program? Because this is an exploration program that's company-wide, all projects. So what's the goals here and what do you expect to demonstrate? So the, the three projects that, that we're gonna be focusing on this year, um, our Quinica Stardust, so that's one project, but it's a combined one, Lorraine and East Niv. Of those three, Quinica Stardust is the flagship project and it's gonna take the bulk of the exploration dollars. So, so globally, we've got a, a 10,000 meter drill program, um, a bunch of geophysics and ground truthing and, and, and ground workup as well. So all in all, about a $10 million program this year focused on those three projects. Quinica Stardust is going to be the focus on the bulk of it. And I think it's worthwhile sort of stressing some of the features of Quinica Stardust and, and why we're so excited about it. And it comes down to grade. So, the, you know, the, the BC, in fact, the, the whole Cordilleran landscape of, of copper deposits is filled with deposits that are 
you know, have average grades of about 0.3 to 0.4 copper equivalent, right? And so the world is awash with copper at those types of grades. It's just the way Mother Nature seemed to um, sort of deposit these types of, of, of deposits. And what makes stardust and quinica unique is grade. You know, they're up to an order of magnitude higher grade in places than that global average or that Cordilleran average. So if you take Stardust, for example, we just put out a resource there. Um, one of our key deliverables post-merger was a resource on Stardust. And we just announced 8 million tons of just under, sorry, just under 8 million tons of about 2%, 2% copper equivalent. So not 0.2%, but 2%. So this is a high-grade copper gold system that's wide open, amenable to, in our opinion, amenable to bulk tonnage underground mining methods and situated perfectly it's a project you can drive to and it's setting and some of the some of the intervals that that i think are worth quoting from our our resource drill holes such as 100 meters of 5.3 percent copper equivalent 142 meters of of 2.47 copper equivalent 31 meters of 10.47 copper percent these are percent copper equivalent so just to give you a sense of the tenor of the of the um, of the grade here, it's high grade, very very unique. I think it's one of the highest grade, if not the highest grade, copper uh, deposits in BC, and it's sitting next to the Quinica deposit, which when people think about historically about the Quinica deposit, they probably think of it as a typical British Columbia copper deposit running 0.4 percent copper. Uh, which is how it's published in their resource estimates. But sitting within that big envelope of, of low-grade copper is a high-grade core that's characterized by grades and intervals such as this, you know, such as 600 meters, 610 meters of 1.32% copper, you know, 700 meters of 0.9% copper, you know, 438 meters of 1.3% copper. So, I mean, the list goes on and on. So within Quinica, there is a high-grade core that is incredibly complementary to the high-grade component of, of Stardust. So our view here is that by better understanding that high-grade and focusing our drilling on it exclusively this summer, we're going to be able to better constrain it, expand it, better model it, and use that as a key building block for a development scenario that combines Stardust and Quinica into, into one project. So we have grade on our side here, which makes it very, very unique, adds a huge amount of flexibility. Grade solves everything in the world, whether it's copper, gold, or silver. And having one of the highest grade copper gold systems here in BC is an amazingly strong place to start. And I would argue that, you know, people who are new to the story or even people who are have been following components of the story for the last several years, probably haven't haven't fully appreciated the the high grade nature of what we what we're bringing to the table here. I just want to say both projects, Quinica and Stardust. I mean, they're both really by global standards. They're both high grade. Certainly, I mean, Stardust is an anomaly. <laughs> and then your comment about high grade solves everything. I fully agree with that, just with the exception that high grade solves everything except for bad management teams, right? And, uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it can even be it can even be management proof. <laughs> right. Right. That's right. So, 
Yeah, very, very true. Um, that leads me to bring up the next part of this, which, you know, I know it's still early stage, but people can do some figures and start to figure out what this is starting to look like. But to me, on a conservative front, it appears that the production profile here with this combined project could support easily a hundred million pound per year operation with a 15 year plus mine life. And I think that's conservative. Can you just speak to just ballpark of what you guys are anticipating or envisioning for this combined project? Well, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. I, I think if we can, if we can design a project that meets those types of production thresholds, we become a, a going concern, a real credible, contributor to the copper production in BC. And it's a project that that would have sort of broad appeal to, you know, every intermediate copper producer on the street today. Right. So 100 million, 100, sorry, 100 million pounds of copper equivalent per year would be sort of the the um, the target production that we would like to try and design as we get farther down the development path here because it, you know, it becomes globally relevant. Talk just a little bit more there. Um, talk about your plan to advance through, because you mentioned a potential start to a PEA, maybe sometime early next year. Talk about that process as far as your economic study steps, and then the timeline you envision there, Mark, to where you think, you know, you guys can get to a point where you're looking at you know, advanced studies and potential finance and build out. Can you just kind of cover the time frame and the steps that you look to take? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, I mean, we're fortunate that there's been a lot of work done on both projects that we can we can stand on the shoulders of and leverage, right? So we don't have to start a whole bunch of this work from scratch, which compresses timelines and makes things move a lot quicker from an investor's point of view, because, you know, time is the enemy on, on a lot of these things. So there's going to be a lot of deliverables this year. Um, and we've delivered two already. So we delivered, as I said before, we delivered a resource, first ever resource on, on Stardust uh, globally. We delivered metallurgical work for the first time at Stardust, which was, was excellent in the high 90s, mid to high 90s for recoveries for copper and gold. Our next deliverable, aside from ongoing drilling results at Quinica, is going to be a resource estimate, an updated resource estimate at Quinica focused on the high grade. So we're less concerned about how big the overall envelope of copper gold is at Quinica, and we're much more concerned about how big is that high grade core and how does it hang together. And once that's quantified, those now become the building blocks for a PEA, a preliminary economic assessment, it used to be called a scoping study. <clears throat> so we're gonna be working on completing that scoping study by either the end of this year or early 2022. And depending on how quickly we get results back from the lab, that's been the bottleneck for the past couple of years. Um, so that's that's really the the culmination of phase one of our, of our project development path here is let's get to a PEA. And at that point, we move in, we make a decision, sort of a go, no go decision into a PFS and ultimately a feasibility study and you begin your permitting process at that point and, and, and make some decisions about how you want to move forward, where your gaps are in your, in your data, what you need to fill in, et cetera. So while all that's happening, I mean, what's exciting about the story is that it's not just a development story, it's also a discovery story. And while, so while all that's happening, we're going to be drilling a project called East Niv, 
just up the road that's never been drilled before, but has all of the hallmarks of, of a large copper gold porphyry system. You know, that what makes it exciting is that it's a, it's a big land package. It's got, a, it's got the right geochemical and geophysical signatures for a large copper gold body being there. There's outcropping ore grade mineralization, and it's never been drilled before. So finding a walk-up drill-ready target that's outcropping in BC that's never been drilled before is very, very unusual. And so really the credit for that goes to the Serengeti team who worked this up over the last two years. And as part of this merger that we just con concluded, one of the key things that we, we need to get in and do right away is go test that. And if we're successful there, we'll have two, we'll have a second key porphyry center uh, in our portfolio that's going to drive a lot of momentum. And Mark, my next question was going to be about monetization of pipeline projects, but my suspicion is that's not on the table and that why you guys continue to advance, as you said, with uh, Quinica and Stardust, that these other projects will also be advanced. My suspicion is until you guys are at a point where you might need finance money for the first project, that there's no way that these projects will be monetized and these are going to be important parts of the pipeline. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Yeah. And the fact is we, we love the, the footprint that we're in right now and, and would even look to add to the, sort of the key flagship projects in terms of space and, and um, footprint to what we have. So we're not in divestment mode here when it comes to uh, East Niv, Lorraine or Quinica Stardust. And so, I mean, Lorraine, we haven't touched on yet, but um, even though we're not going to be drilling it this year, and so it's, it's hard to get people sort of revved up about it, we're not drilling it this year and we're not and it's not because we don't love it or, or don't think that it has lots of promise we do but we think that that promise is best served by taking a year compiling all the historical data that's been sitting in the archives <clears throat> at various companies over the last several decades and having a fresh new look at it to go back in in 2022 and and drill it drill new targets and make a material change to the project. We know it has high grade. We know there's a series of high grade copper gold porphyry centers that have been discovered by tech. They just haven't been followed up in 12 years, right? So it's been sitting in the archives in tech's vault for 12 years. We've extracted it. We own it 100% now. We're doing all of the sort of background compilation work this year, um, sort of quietly in the background, but we wanna get it ready because it is going to be an important component of our overall sort of global exploration plans um, moving forward. Mark, that sounds good. Well, I wanna throw a curveball here and move on to another subject here. Environmental social governance. What is your view of ESG and how has this new acronym changed the investment environment since CSR and prior reiterations? So ESG is here to stay. And, you know, it's like you say, it's a new, acronym from CSR, you know, I would say as a, a motherhood statement that, you know, all of the companies that, that I've been involved with creating and running and managing for the last 20 years have all had sort of deep commitments to doing the right thing, working with the communities in which we operate, being good neighbors, making sure economic benefits flow, cutting good deals with, um, with local First Nations and indigenous populations. So it's called ESG now. We need to um, we need to quantify 
our uh, performance against new criteria, which we're all sort of working through as an industry right now. And, and hopefully there'll be some um, standards set in terms of how, how organizations are judged and what they're measured against. So we're, we're doing that right now. We should have you know, a beefed up sustainability section to our corporate website, et cetera, in the next six months or so. But you know, as it stands right now, we've got good working relationships with the First Nations groups at all of the projects that we are working this year. Um, so whether that's the TACLA or the Seke Deni or the Gitsan, so we, we've got exploration agreements in place. You know, we follow the E3 framework for responsible exploration. You know, we've got in-house community engagement people. And, you know, there's ways of doing things in this day and age. And I think we do them reasonably well and we're fully committed to them. You know, a lot of people on the investor side that are asking that question to companies about ESG, they really don't understand the blood, sweat, tears, and stress that goes into real heavy-duty community work and environmental work, you know, ESG-type work. And so uh, it is early stage. There's a lot of different criteria out there and, and a lot of different ratings and, and confused, where do we get this sorted out type setup? Mm -hmm. But I want to just come back and point out on community for a moment. Yeah, are there any initiatives that the company is doing now that you'd like to highlight on the community side or initiatives that the company has planned as it continues to grow towards development? Um, well, really, initiatives like that uh, revolve around interaction with the with the local communities and the local First Nations, if we're talking about BC specifically. So, you know, you, you want to design things that are meaningful and impactful to the community rather than sort of presuppose what what they might want. So, you know, with the new management team in place and with this new portfolio approach, you know, that kind those conversations need to need to start up and you know, whether that takes a year or so to kind of get a better handle on what it is that's needed specifically. I would say that in general, um, the themes that are important in, in the communities in which we work are employment, capacity building, partnering with contracting groups that uh, the First Nations group have partnerships with already. So sharing the economics of all phases of a mining cycle from exploration to development and operations is something that that is going to become pretty standard. Mark, talk about some of the concerns here with Northwest at this point. I know in the back of your mind, uh, there's probably a few things that you see as, as your biggest challenges going forward. Maybe you can point to some of those. Is it the copper price? Is it the broad market potential breakdown in the broad market? Is it a technical challenge? Is it permitting in BC project finance? You know what sticks out to you? Well, it's interesting. BC has is one of those jurisdictions that ebbs and flows in terms of its attractiveness to um, outside investment, right? And and right now, it is experiencing a real boom in outside sort of multinational companies coming to BC to explore for and develop these copper deposits because it is a tier one jurisdiction. As the world around us gets riskier and riskier and, and these sovereign risks and these security of tenure risks that we see in developing nations get more acute, there is great comfort in coming to a tier one jurisdiction like British Columbia. You know, and we've seen everything from Newcrest's acquisition of Red Chris, uh, just up the road, uh, Newmont's acquisition of 
GT Gold, South 32 moving into BC, and you know, the list goes on all the way up into the Yukon, frankly, with RTZ's recent investment in Western Copper. So a lot of the big boys are moving into this part of the world because not only because of the endowment, the sort of natural endowment that exists here, an exploration upside, but also it's a, it's a framework, it's a jurisdiction in which people feel they can operate. So that's that's really positive. I would say that when you think about developing a project, one thing that needs to improve greatly is the length of time for permitting, right? And so it doesn't need to, maybe it doesn't need to be a five-year process to permit a mine. Maybe it needs to be three, right? And so getting the permitting process streamlined and much more efficient and designed to get to yes would be the biggest concern that all of us have work in these types of jurisdictions. I like the way you put that. And I think that's the way that it should be. It should always be that way. And it should have real objectives and guidelines that actually are meaningful, meaningful to economics, meaningful to community, good environmental standards, et cetera. It doesn't have to be a 10-year process. We've seen other countries do it. We've seen other countries, governments motivated to do it because they know the benefits. They know the economics. They know that it puts them in a better position in the future. So yeah, I, I fully agree with that that position and that lineup. Exit strategy. The group has built projects. They've operated them. You've advanced and sold them. What is the plan at Northwest, Mark? And what is your realistic time horizon to get there? Well, it's interesting when you talk about exit plans, uh, you know, as a sort of a plug for Oxygen and its and its group of companies, you know, since 2016, which isn't very long ago, you know, it's five years, three of the world's new gold mines come from Oxygen, right? So three come from, from us, Long Canyon, which Newmont built, and Karma and Pure Gold, which we built ourselves, built and financed ourselves for the last, over the last couple of years. So, you know, in terms of exit strategies, we're kind of agnostic about an exit strategy. And it comes down to the market that we're in at the time of value creation, right? So if, if it's a project that we feel can create the most value by building it, because there's no uh, acquisitors willing to pay what we think it's worth, then we'll go build it, right? If it's a project that we think it makes sense to sell before a construction decision, then that's fine too. I, I kind of view the, our companies and the, the projects that we incubate and grow as having sort of multiple destinies, right? I'm kind of agnostic about which avenue we go down. What I would say is that I want all of them to be buildable and financeable by us, right? So one of the key things about all of these projects, including Northwest Copper, is that we need to be able to finance them ourselves. We need to be, they need to be technically uh, simple enough for us to operate them and build them ourselves. So we're not talking about getting behind a behemoth, you know, two or $3 billion CapEx project where it's completely inconceivable that a, you know, a $200 million company could ever finance that, right? In a situation like that, your only exit is to sell or sit around and hope for somebody to come by you. You know, I've never been good at sitting around waiting for anything. And so we only get involved with projects that we feel we can actually take to the finish line ourselves 
if we need to or want to. And so what I find attractive about Stardust and Quinica is that it fits that mold perfectly. Yes, it's a copper gold deposit. Copper gold deposits are notoriously high capital intensity or high capital cost projects, but this one is not anticipated to be that because it's so high grade, means it's gonna be smaller, more flexible, and more nimble and financeable. So we're looking at something that we hope we could finance for under $500 million, which would fit into our wheelhouse of being able to do it ourselves. So we have flexibility. You know, as we develop this, if we need to take it all the way, we can. And if somebody comes in and expresses an interest in acquiring it at a reasonable price, we can, we can go down that route as well. Very well said. Uh, I think you hit a lot of things on the head right there as far as the strategy, the thought process, and how they should be set up. You know, with this current copper price, a lot of projects are being dusted off. This higher copper price uh, makes projects that were optionality projects start to look good. With the you know environmental side of things, Mark, the permitting lead times generally increasing across the board. Uh, copper price environment is suitable, but you know how long do you see this going as far as copper price? Do you see this continuing on because of just the sheer lead time to permit these large, meaningful projects in the future that are going to take many, many years to get done? Um, do you think you've got the timing right? And uh, what's your thoughts here as mid-tiers and majors continue to, you know, cash pile up? I do think it's sustainable. I do think it's going to continue because the uh, sort of the, the roadblocks that are going to get put in place for continuing to develop mega projects, mega pits, are going to be more and more stringent. So where I'm going with this is that I think we're going to see a sea change in a lot of jurisdictions where there is going to be a requirement for companies to be more surgical in their mining methods. Okay, so in the case of British Columbia, for example, you know, the first underground block cave was New Afton, and it's now a key a component of New Gold's production profile, but they were sort of the pioneers and leaders of that sort of surgical approach, big bulk tonnage underground mining of a copper gold deposit. Now, Newcrest has just moved in and bought which are which are an Australian company who are the world's leaders in in block caving mining methods, and they've come in and they've just bought Redcris and they're going to build BC's second block cave. Okay, so another surgical underground mining method in in terms of you know compared to an open pit. So I think we're going to see a bit of a paradigm shift in how these copper deposits are going to be built. So a lot of the big mega projects that that might lend themselves to a massive open pit might still be sitting on the sidelines because they might they might not be permittable in some places. And so maybe that never hits the market. And until they they figure out ways of 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 minimizing that environmental footprint by going underground, for example, um, you know, I think I think they're gonna be they're gonna be strained to to get permitted. These are good points, and I think that there's a number of those uh, that are in this region. I'm not going to mention project names here, but there are a few that should reconsider some of those strategies, and maybe that'll alleviate some of the permitting hurdles there to, to actually get this move forward. But still, it's, it's going to be many, many years uh, ahead of us here. Mm -hmm. Well, Mark, 
potential investors that are on the sidelines listening here, market cap of Northwest Copper stands about 94 million Canadian today. What would you say to them about taking a stake in Northwest Copper at these current levels? I'll speak for myself. I'm an investor, a large investor in this company. I think it's incredibly uniquely positioned given where it is geographically, where it is in the copper space, the stage that our projects are at, you know, in terms of everything from greenfields discovery opportunities, driving momentum to near-term development decisions, and grade, right? And so you've got grade on your side here, which is cannot be underestimated or, or discounted here. So, and I would go back to the original statement about, you know, what stocks have run and what ha haven't in this copper rally. And the seniors and mid-tier copper producers have all had an amazing run, you know, upwards of a thousand percent in some cases. I would say that the junior developers and explorers have not had that yet. So I think timing looks pretty good for positioning yourself in companies such as this. Agreed. And the best way for investors to reach out to the company? So northwestcopper.ca is the website. And uh, you can go on there and tap the investor button and get in touch with you know, the CEO, Peter Bell, get in touch with me, Marco Day, or Adrian O'Brien is our investor relations manager. Mark, thanks for taking the time to update on Northwest Copper. Stay well, and uh, we'll chat again soon. Thanks so much, Andrew. Really appreciate the time.